this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Michael from Logos. Logos is a novel transaction network designed for high scalability while maintaining decentralization and trustlessness. Logos is built for applications that require cheap, efficient, intelligent, and secure transfers of economic value that range in size from microtransactions to industry scale. So what is this? You know, basically, Michael has developed a new protocol out there using uh, features like DAGs, and we've talked about that before. Uh, IOTA and some other projects have tried to use graphs to effectively change the way that blocks are uh, propagated and created. Uh, the Bitcoin blockchain and others use more of a linear approach. A graph is more kind of all around the way, and it doesn't necessarily follow a linear path. It's supposed to hypothetically be faster. So we talked about DAGs. We also talked about delegated proof of stake because uh, there is a staking mechanism and incentive. So we talked about all of that. And so Michael's really interesting because he came from traditional finance uh, before Logos. He was at a few hedge funds. And before that, he got his joint MS and BA uh, in, uh, I think it was Applied Mathematics and Statistics from Harvard. Um, and that was a joint MS and BA. Um, not too shabby. So really smart uh, people, obviously, coming from traditional finance and applying what they've used and learned to building new systems in crypto, I think, are incredibly interesting. So listen to it. Learn what he's been doing. You're going to hear funny things. Uh, I love these kind of parts of it where they come up with uh, parts to their protocol that they called Axios, Chainmesh, and Polis. Love when people do that because it adds a little more flavor to this. So it's not just a, a mundane white paper that you have to read. And so you're going to learn a lot. Listen and uh, enjoy it. Remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And then on the flip side, you're going to hear the conversation with Michael. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Michael from Logos with us. Michael, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me, David. So I got to meet Michael a few weeks ago during the infamous blockchain week um, and came from a, you know some really great, reliable sources in the industry that have already been taking a very deep look into the work that Michael is doing. So for the listeners, what we usually like to do is to go through the quick history about you. You have a pretty accomplished history from academia, uh, a joint MSBA in applied mathematics and statistics from Harvard University. Um, I wish I got to say that. I can just say that I went to a Big Ten school and I didn't uh, didn't overdose on beer one night. <laughs> and so in all of its own. <laughs> and so you have a great background and you're working in this space right now. We would love to hear from you kind of why, you know, through your kind of path, why you decided what's what about the the underlying technology? whether it's the Bitcoin blockchain or blockchain in general, what about the underlying technology really decided for you was so important that you had to dedicate your career to building within the space? So if you could just give us a little bit about yourself, your background, and then go into kind of that why, not necessarily the when, but the why. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I uh, am the founder and CEO of Logos, as you mentioned, and we are building out a payments network that's fully decentralized, open, permissionless, but also designed for the real world. So 
sure we'll get into that in a second, but my background for launching Logos about 18 months ago was largely in quant finance professionally. I worked at a big hedge fund called Ellington Management Group, about $7 billion under management across a variety of roles. Ended up in portfolio management in equity volatility, uh, but started before then in modeling uh, mortgage strategies, built out the first model on defaults on consumer credit, uh, also worked in equities, corporate credit. So really touched a lot of buckets there, was there for a number of years. And uh, before that, you mentioned I was uh, at school, got you know a joint master's, bachelor's, uh, some value for the money there, um, which is nice. But you know, really, my two interests driving you know my career going forward here have always been technology and finance, and you know the uh, blockchain, Bitcoin, and all that represents is really the ultimate marriage of those two, in my opinion. And so I think like many, I first got into the crypto space uh, through Bitcoin itself. You know, it was sort of the only game in town in the early days. Actually, I think probably like a lot of people wrote it off initially as something that's never going to work and it's not going to happen. But very quickly, as I developed a little more framework to understand it, I realized, wow, this is amazing technology. It has unbelievable potential here. And what really grabbed my attention is when you think on, you know, sort of a dollar weight basis, what are the potential impact of a variety of technology, a variety of problems out there, particularly when you're thinking about the financial sector. When, you know, the thing I was doing immediately previously to this equity volatility is very interesting from a mathematical perspective, very complex, um, you know, and also exciting. You know, trading is something that, you know, can keep you up at night just as easily as the volatility in the crypto space. Uh, but at the end of the day, volatility derivatives in general is somewhat of a zero-sum game. So in many ways, it's fundamentally a less interesting problem. And on the flip side, something like blockchain not only has this tremendous disruptive potential, but the industries that it's really poised here to disrupt are so massive and touch on our everyday lives. And specifically, things that we focus on here at Logos, uh, payments, you know, is such a massive part of everyday life for everyone. And globally, revenues are on the order of $1 to $2 trillion. Uh, and so it's a massive industry globally and one that's very inefficient, one that often doesn't work for the end users. And so the marriage of that technology and that potential within the realm of finance and you know even beyond is what really grabbed my attention and convinced me at the end of the day after following the industry very closely, contributing for many years, really starting in 2011 and actually investing for several years, running a variety of different strategies, you know, finally decided to take a plunge and you know, in mid 2017 or so, early 2017, really started on this path uh, and subsequently launched Logos in late 2017 after really percolating on the ideas for quite a bit of time. We love, love, love having people that came from traditional finance on the show. Um, it obviously affects the narrative in a very positive way. You were, <laughs> you were in it, and you were doing things that every family office and institutional asset manager looks at every single day. You were doing risk. You were looking at the mainstream markets, and you realized that there was something there and that this was going to be transformative. We love that. That is great. Um, 
So if you could dig into what is Logos, you know, kind of give us the the what, why, and the how. I see that you mentioned that Logos fundamentally redefines the concept of a cryptocurrency through a new architecture and consensus algorithm. So would love for you to also unpack that. And I have a feeling we're going to be getting a little bit into the more technicals, but start us slow and then we'll go into a little bit more of the technicals. Yeah, for sure. So really at the high level, the idea behind Logos is quite simple. We want a way to efficiently transfer value, do payments in a more efficient way that works for the end user. And Bitcoin obviously started us on this great path here to really disrupt traditional payments. But we very quickly ran into some roadblocks here in terms of capacity, in terms of performance, in terms of speed, and importantly, the usability to the end user. And so our goal at Logos is to really take on those problems head on and deliver on that original vision of payments. So, you know, specifically the problems with something like Bitcoin is that it takes an hour for a transaction to be confirmed. It often costs a dollar, five dollars. I personally paid something like fifty dollars really at the peak of the backlog of transactions, you know, a year or 18 months ago. Um, and they can only handle about three transactions per second. And I think even the bigger sticking point on top of that is that very few people want to transact in Bitcoin. Even if you get comfortable with transacting different currency, the reality is the general economy runs in fiat currency. So there's going to have to be a swap that occurs or somewhere. And as people in financial markets, I think, will appreciate very much is that even if that becomes very efficient, the margins and the spreads and the fees come down significantly, there's still a big mental cost there. And that's something that has to be managed. So that's a big hurdle. So our goals are specifically to maximize performance and end usability in terms of delivering, you know, tens of thousands of transactions per second to hundreds of thousands of transactions per second, really on the order of a centralized network, delivering those transactions for just a fraction of a penny each and being able to really support the usability that you're familiar with, the Venmo-esque experience where for the end user's perspective, you're just transacting in U.S. dollars, and you don't really have to think about the underlying guts of the network, how that money is moving from A to B. That's all taken care of and abstracted from you. So to contextualize things, you know, the order of what we're doing here, something like Visa Mastercard can process uh, tens of thousands of transactions per second. It's probably an aggregate process, you know, 10 to 20,000 transactions per second. We can handle that capacity easily, uh, and about 10,000 transactions will only cost on the order of you know, a few dollars. So it's a massive decrease in the overall cost of the system. You know, the current standard rate fees in the system of credit or debit are something on the order of 100 to 350 basis points, maybe on the extreme end um, that are coming out of gross revenue. That has massive impact for end businesses and something that we can fundamentally change. So we're alluding to the Vitalik trilemma issue of, you know, what do you what do you give up if, you know, do you give up decentralization so you get scalability? Do you give up security so you get decentralization? Um, and so it's an issue that, you know, we're going to be digging more into throughout the next few months on the show. How do you actually get everything that you want? How do you get your, your cake and eat it too? Um, and so... They're obviously with the Bitcoin blockchain that is proof of work with Ethereum that is moving to proof of stake. But then you have Definity and other protocols out there that are moving to proof of stake. And then you have things like delegated proof of stake um, and you have DAGs, um, DeSilla graphs. So 
Talk to us a little bit more a little bit more about what's under the hood of Logos. How do you actually get to thousands of transactions per second comparable to some of the other consensus algorithms? Yeah, so I'll, I'll highlight some things. And I think the interesting thing to note to bring up the scalability trilemma, and that actually even predates Vitalik uh, by even a couple of years. And the interesting thing in, in both the most common form that has been presented by the Ethereum team and sort of its original form it's stated as more of a practical trilemma rather than a true theoretical trilemma. So that what that means is that if there's something theoretically, there's no theorem out there, unlike a lot of other properties in distributed ledgers and uh, you know, distributed algorithms that says this thing is impossible and we can prove this mathematically. And in fact, in those you know, original articles like the Ethereum one, I think is most best known, they actually go around and say, here's our solution that actually satisfies all three of these uh, trade-offs here. So, um, you know, they sort of present a solution to their own trilemma. And incidentally, the solution they present in Ethereum is sharding. Uh, so that's a component in our network. It's something that a lot of people are actually excited about. Um, and something that I think does genuinely solve that trilemma in a way that doesn't give up a lot. Uh, the idea behind sharding for anyone who's not familiar with it, is that if you have you know, a big pool of validators in the network, something like Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, has miners, for example, and you assume that some critical number of miners or validators are honest. In the case of proof of work, it's typically 51% or more. And as long as you have that pool, then uh, honest miners, then you can guarantee the security of transactions and you get this nice decentralized network. The idea is, well, if you have a big enough pool, you can select randomly perhaps a subpool from that and have that subpool handle a uh, section of the incoming transactions. And as long as the pool is big enough and you select the validators in an intelligent way, they're probably going to satisfy that security requirement as well and have at least 51% of the validators being honest. And so in this way, you can see if you break the pool of miners or validators into many different pools, you can multiply the capacity of the network overall. Uh, so that's a very similar idea to um, you know, what we're doing here at Logos, one of the components. Uh, but beyond that, even at a more fundamental level, we're working on really a number of different components that really impact scalability. So I think you mentioned some of the big ones that are really obvious improvements uh, or strict improvements, I should say, over the status quo. You know, Bitcoin was you know, truly seminal and important in bringing us to the point where we are today, where people value crypto assets and you know, uh, agree that there's something there. But now that we've gotten to this current paradigm, there are a number of inefficiencies and uh, you know, poorly designed components of the Bitcoin blockchain that we can improve on without giving up anything in return. Uh, and so we do a number of those things, things like consensus, proof of stake versus proof of work. Proof of stake is much more efficient. It has uh, more uh, better and stronger game theoretic uh, guarantees. It better aligns incentives of the validators with the token holders, with the end users on the network. And importantly, it's much cheaper and faster. You're not using all this excess computer resources to do something that at the end of the day is not contributing directly to the progression of the state of the network going forward. Uh, so that's certainly you know, a major component to what we're doing. 
But you know, the the last component that we tend to highlight that which perhaps is the most important one is the underlying data structure. So I think a lot of people use the term blockchain in a pretty general sense to mean any distributed ledger. It's how I usually use it. But the blockchain, the data structure, where one block occurs after the other, and each block you look back and see the previous block, that in and of itself is somewhat inefficient as data structure. You know, you can think of it as you know each transaction has to follow one of the you know the previous one, and just by waiting for that previous transaction to be processed, you're giving up excess computer cycles or computer resources that are being uh, not fully utilized or laying latent while you're waiting. And so we can actually change around those underlying data structures uh, to make it more efficient so that you're fully utilizing all your computer's resources uh, in all the validator nodes and really push performance without really giving up too much in return. Now, what that basically gets us is something that can push the performance of the overall network to the limits of hardware. And then sharding brings us beyond those limits of hardware. But at the end of the day, there are certain trade-offs. So one of the trade-offs that you know, we internally have made is we are focusing on payments and simple data transfer. This is a much more narrow and focused problem than something like Ethereum is trying to take on, for example. Ethereum is trying to you know, be the general purpose smart contract platform, decentralized computation, and it has a ton of really interesting applications uh, that need that functionality of whole turn complete smart contract system built in. But for just moving money to A to B, or even something a little more complex like security settlement, you know, trading a stock and having it move from ownership of fund one to fund two, that all is a much simpler problem, and that's what we've decided to take on. And so, in many ways, our architecture optimizes for the payments data transfer problem and is not optimized for that general purpose smart contract system. And in fact, we don't have full smart contracts in our system. We have them to a limited extent, but they're much more limited purposefully because we don't want the performance of the system to lag. And uh, we've deliberately made this choice. So, you know, in summary, there are a number of choices here that can really dramatically improve the status quo. And then beyond that, you really specialize to a specific vertical or use case. And I think that overall thesis that there's not going to be one single winner-take-all network, but rather a number of different networks that each specialize within a single vertical is really just driving our vision. And, you know, we think payments happen to be the biggest bucket within that paradigm. So let me ask you to opine on this a little bit. So I was listening to a talk from Silvio from Algorand. He was at MIT and he was talking about proof of stake and he was talking about bonded proof of stake. And he had a picture of basically someone putting all of their their fiat onto a table and then lighting it on fire. So there's this notion with proof of stake and correct me if I'm wrong, talk to us a little bit about this because you obviously have the experience and the background to kind of break this down a little bit more. But with proof of stake and the game theoretics on there is that effectively, instead of proof of work where you're using heavy machinery, you're using computation, you're using energy, and that's kind of you know the, the, the costs, the inherent costs with proof of stake, you're basically just staking specific, you know, a specific cryptocurrency um, or specific token. And obviously there is an intrinsic value there to you. You're putting up some sort of, you know, you're, you're transferring some sort of fiat to a token and then you're using that token to stake. And so, you know, there's this notion that 
you have to have a pretty decent amount of of money, of fiat, to transfer to tokens actually being a relevant staker in a lot of these systems. And then there's this idea that if you, you know, if you are a bad actor, air quotes, that it gets confiscated. Now, I know we didn't necessarily, you know, prepare to talk a lot about this, but I'm curious, you know, is that necessarily, do you think that's a scaling solution to do that? Yeah, so I think a, a few things to unpack there. So first, in terms of you know the general accessibility and what it takes to be a staker versus a miner, you know at the end of the day they're somewhat economically equivalent. You're taking fiat money, presumably as your regular numeraire or, or base asset, U.S. dollars, let's say, and you're investing in something that's specific to the network and intentionally used to earn money from you know, providing a service to the network, whether that's mining machinery or if it's tokens on the network. And the reality of the situation is that proof of work ends up being pretty centralized. Something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, as well as most of the other major proof of work tokens out there are dominated by something like anywhere from four to, you know, eight mining pools. And so if you have just a small number of central bad actors there, um, you actually have quite concentrated risk. And the economics of something like mining is actually, um, you know, has quite large economies of scale where if you have to arrange special contracts with electricity providers, you have to build server farms, you have to you know, have cooling systems, all these sort of practical capital expenditure, uh, expenditure items really push the market towards centralization. Um, and, you know, you bring up a good point where in order to be a meaningful contributor in a staking network, then you need to have some non-negligible capital investment, but that's not too different from having to buy a non-negligible number of mining rigs to have a meaningful impact on the you know, governance and running of proof-of-work network. And there are actually, I think, ways that make it even more democratic. In our network, for example, we have a bit of a hierarchy of validators where there are sort of general validators on the system that are akin to a full node on Bitcoin and Ethereum, whose basic job is to keep track of transactions and answer queries from people on their cell phone or merchants who are asking how much money does this particular account have, or can you process this transaction? And then there's a special set of validators that are actually running the consensus process themselves. This is beneficial from a performance perspective because you want to have a relatively small number of uh, participants in a consensus process due to scaling properties. Uh, but the key property in our network is that the general nodes on the network can all validate and police those smaller number of validators. And so all this to say is there's a democratic, fully decentralized election for who those validators might be. And one of the criteria you might use if you're deciding to cast your vote is uh, how much funds is this person staking and your vote in the system is proportional to the amount of funds that you yourself are staking. But it means that if someone is a particularly effective validator, even if they don't have the most money in the system, if they are actually contributing real value to the system, they have the potential to be in that validator slot and have an outsized say in the running of the network. Um, obviously with all the economic incentives and game theory behind it to make sure that they actually behave. Um, you know, to answer the, the broader question of, is this a, long-term scaling solution, I think the answer there is that with any centralized network, you're never going to be as efficient as a centralized network. That's something 
that you need to accept and a cost that's always going to be there. And the question in any application, whether it's payments, whether it's centralized computation, digital identity, DeFi, you know, all the things that people have considered for use in blockchain cryptocurrency is whether that cost of decentralization is really worth it. And at the end of the day, there's a certain number of messages that need to be sent back and forth. There's a certain minimum amount of cost to bring a number of different independent nodes to agreement on what the state must look like. And that's strictly more expensive than having one computer decide what the state is. Um, and so all this to say is that you can kind of back out what's the maximum number of transactions that a reasonable geared node can handle and there's a certain hardware limit that confers and that's sort of the limit of scalability that you're talking about. Now you can go from there to expand it somewhat using techniques like sharding, but you know, the given that cost, that baseline cost of operating the decentralized setting, proof of stake enables you to hit those hardware limits. So in that sense, it's somewhat theoretically optimal, but it doesn't get around those core constraints of the system. So, you know, you have to accept that there's going to be an additional incremental cost. In many cases like payments, I think that cost is well worth it, particularly compared to the status quo. Right. I had a feeling you were able to answer that. I know this is a little going a little off script and we, we have other things we want to talk about, but... From my meeting with you, I figured you were of many people, well, there's not that many of you, but there are certain people that I've gotten to meet over the last few months that can handle these types of uh, tough questions, and I'm glad you're able to. So in terms of scaling, again, going back to that kind of theme, and then we're going to go into some other things you talked about in terms of, you know, you had some conversations about the coming decades and physical forms of payment that I want to talk about. But in terms of your solution at Logos in terms of scaling, you list three different designs. And I would love, I think you kind of already started to hit on this in the beginning, but I'd love you to dig a little bit more. And I love these names. So Axios, Chain Mesh, and Polis. If you could, you know, tell us a little bit about each one of those three and what they do in terms of scaling Logos in the system. Yeah, for sure. So I've, I've touched on a few of them, uh, but I'll dig into some of the more interesting detail here. Now, as a quick aside, a lot of the names are somewhat a Greek influence, as you can probably tell, and uh, it's a common theme in decentralized distributed algorithms to to have a sort of Byzantine uh, you know, theme to, to the name. So we stuck with the convention there. We'll start with the chain mesh. This is really what I was hinting at earlier when I talked about some of the efficiencies a blockchain, the data structure. So where you have one block after another, that ends up being quite inefficient. And the analogy uh, or the parallel that I always draw is that if you and I both have, let's say, uh, Chase credit cards and we both are buying coffee at two different coffee shops, these are two completely unrelated transactions. They have nothing to do with one another. You know, my money's not touching yours. Neither of the coffee shop's money is touching each other's. And when Chase is processing those two transactions, even if they happen at the exact same time, they don't need to wait for my transaction to finish before your transaction gets processed. Instead, they process them concurrently here. You know, they check your account balance, they check my account balance, they move the money, et cetera. It flows through the system. But in no case is my transaction holding up your transaction. And so in, in the, the simple concept uh, or simple setting of payments, there's no reason for my blockchain payment to hold up your blockchain payment, except that's exactly what happens. There are only so many transactions that can fit in a single batch. 
and you have to wait for that batch of transactions to finish before you can start the next batch. And so the, what we've done on the chain mesh side is, you know, the key insight is basically, well, a blockchain is just a global amalgamation of all transactions that are occurring. But what you really care about at the end of the day is if I go to send my money to a shop in exchange for a good, we need to make sure that my money, that I have sufficient money in my account and that I'm not spending that money somewhere else at the same time. And so you can always almost imagine a chain of transactions at the individual user level or the account level. And that's exactly what the underlying chain mesh data structure is. For each user in the system, they have really a set of chains of transactions. And one of the key properties that you want in a centralized system to ensure security is that you can apply a total ordering to the transactions. Uh, meaning that I know that this transaction followed this transaction followed this transaction. That's really key to just track the money and ensure that the strict, uh, you know, controls in the system, making sure that people don't spend more than they have actually holds. And since you are, you know, effectively separating out the individual data structure at the account level, it's very easy to guarantee in this paradigm. Now, I mentioned earlier, there's some trade-offs. This gets a little more complex if you wanted to have arbitrary smart contracts on your platform here, but for something like payments or simple data transfer, it works quite neatly. And the idea behind chain mesh, the name itself, is that you have a large number of chains, one for each user in the account, and they crisscross with one another. As I send money to another account, there's a link in between those two chains and you end up with a mesh type structure. So you mentioned DAGs earlier. Structurally, mathematically, this is in fact, a DAG, but compared to a lot of other DAGs out there, something like you know IOTA or even something like Hashgraph, this is very different from what those guys do, um, and ends up having a lot of structure and rules around it. You know, the key property, the starting point, even beyond performance, is you need to make sure that security is guaranteed. And we spend a lot of time making sure that mathematically and theoretically the security of the system can't be compromised while at the same time achieving parallelism in the system as well. So that's one major thing. Uh, we add parallelism to the processing of transactions, whereas blockchain itself is serial. And that's actually the biggest boost to performance. We sort of touched on proof of stake here, and I sketched out how we do it, uh, but it's, it's relatively straightforward. Instead of mining rings, you buy stake in the network. And as you mentioned, we also have uh, slashing conditions where the only way you can possibly threaten the network as a node that from a security standpoint is to act in a provably malicious way that other nodes in the network will recognize and they can submit that malicious behavior to the rest of the network and you, the offender, are penalized by losing that stake in the system. And so it's a highly aligned incentive structure system. And that's really key, again, to making sure that security in the system is guaranteed while boosting performance. And really, the, that's uh, the Axios consensus. And then the final component here is the Polis state charting, which I described earlier. But you know, once you hit those limits of hardware, that's those first two components, chain mesh and Axios. You know, you're using all your bandwidth, you're using all your database input-output, you're fully using your CPU, uh, and we design the system that nicely balances various available resources but you are going to end up running into that hardware constraint. Sharding and our system specifically Polis uh, 
lets you expand past that. Now, there's a limit to that. Um, it's somewhat similar to like a Laffer curve in economics where you first get efficiency gains, then after a certain amount of time, the coordination between the various pools of validators gets to be too much overhead and we start degrading the overall performance of the network. Uh, we're doing some cool things under the hood there, but without getting to too much detail, that's really the, the three-legged stool that our network really uses to boost performance. And one of the things that uh, you know people have been saying in the ecosystem, you know, when I ask them about DAGs, is that they just don't work. Um, they cite an MIT paper. I think that they did some research about this. They say that you know the DAG and IOTA has been slow to actually gain ground. Um, so I'm just curious because it sounds to me that you guys have actually been able to start seeing it work. So can you talk a little bit about that? Is there, have you gone past mainnet? Or are you getting closer to, or you, uh, have you gone past testnet and getting to more into mainnet? Where are you guys right now in terms of the maturation of the, the system itself? And are you seeing it being performant? Yeah. So, uh, you know, all the, a note on sort of all our internal claims, and this gets kind of the heart of your question here. We tend to be pretty conservative in what we go out and promise. You see a lot of claims out there that are somewhat ridiculous. The sensationalization of these various tests has come down somewhat with uh, you know the, the hype dying down a little bit here, but nevertheless, kind of the status quo is to overpromise in this space. And so you get a lot of really crazy numbers out there in terms of performance. When we put out numbers there, we try to be very intellectually honest around what we're promising and to the extent possible backed up with real data real results. And so we are uh, getting very close to mainnet launch here. We're sort of in spinal testing phases here, adding the last few features and integrating them. Uh, but we have an up and running test net that has all the substantial major features that are in the network that anyone can go and join. Uh, there's links to it on our Medium blog post and main website page that uh, if you want, you can go and actually test out yourself and see the actual performance. So the numbers that we've been seeing are uh, actually better than what we were initially expecting. Um, I mentioned when we're fully featured, we'll be able to process something like 100 to 200,000 transactions per second. That's with that feature I call you know sharding added in. Uh, but even without sharding, really at the limits of hardware, we're able to process on the order of 20,000 transactions per second with a confirmation latency of two seconds, which means that when you submit your transaction within two seconds, you're getting a response that that transaction has gone through and it can't be reversed. And that's in contrast to something like Bitcoin where you're generally waiting about 60 minutes for that to be fully confirmed. Um, and so we have very strong confidence in our own numbers there. And you know, based on the concrete results out there, the empirically observable values for performance of other networks were well out front of what the other networks can deliver. Now, you bring up... Uh, you know, IOTA specifically, um, and DAGs more generally. And I know the, the MIT piece that you were uh, referring to here. So a quick word about uh, DAGs is that it's a very general class of data structures. It's a directed acyclic graph, which sounds complicated, but at the end of the day just means it's a set of nodes that all run in the same direction. So blockchain, in a way, is a trivial version of a DAG where each node only has one child node, but in the same way, it only runs in one direction forward into the future. And you can clearly track the history. 
And so all this to say is that DAGs are a huge class of data structures. And so our DAG looks very different from IOTA's DAG, which looks very different from Hashgraph's DAG. You know, there aren't too many DAGs out there, uh, certainly far fewer than the number of blockchains. But even something like Ethereum, they have these technical concepts called uncles or orphan blocks that are included in the data structure that technically, again, form a DAG structure hidden within you know, that core blockchain. So basically what this means is that you know, the not many DAGs are alike and our own DAG uh, is, you know, we're taking great care to actually prove mathematically that the security properties from consensus to things like double spend uh, to things like other attack vectors all hold. Uh, so that's something that you can you know, go and check your math uh, or math um, if it's something that interests you, but just, you know, specifically in the case of IOTA, uh, they're kind of an interesting position in that they currently have a centralized uh, feature in their network called the coordinator. And they have the pretty grand plan to kill the coordinator called Cordicide uh, and move to a fully decentralized state. But I think the, the main issue that IOTA is facing right now is that their DAG version is much less structured than ours. So in our network, as I mentioned, for each account, there is a single chain of transactions. Each transaction that you perform has to be added to that chain, just like you know, in a regular blockchain, each transaction has to be added to the blockchain. And there's a single definitive order. And importantly, the entire network is always synced on the order of those transactions and what transactions have occurred. The challenge that IOTA faces is that not all the nodes in the network in fact, none of the nodes on the network really in the fully decentralized state know all the transactions that have occurred. And that's very challenging from mathematical side. And the you know, specific issues that they're running into are related to that lack of synchronicity across the nodes. In our network, there's very high, strong synchronicity. Um, that's partially guaranteed by those rules and structures that we've imposed in the DAG. It's much less loose than the IO DAG. Um, so I think what you bring up, though, is really the critical point here. Any network that comes out and claims that you know, they can do X, Y, and Z, it's critical that they can actually prove that they can do that. Otherwise, you, know, you can't trust the code, you can't trust the map behind the network, and there's no single institution for you to trust. So it's, you, you're left with something that's not very useful at the end of the day. And that's why we really emphasize that component to you know, actually prove things out. Yeah. And so I, I don't, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I, I was going to say that it sounded like a Jerry Maguire moment where it's like, show me the money, but now it's like, show me the TPS. Um, and so I, I you know, maybe we can get, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. on the show and, 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 you know, do a soundbite, show me the TPS. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of curious, you know, to get a general sense, you know, obviously we've talked about the structure we've talked about, the processes in place, we've talked about how you guys are doing this and now obviously getting closer to mainnet. What are some of the use cases or the industries that you think you can affect fairly immediately? And again, this is really good for the kind of the family offices and the high net worth and the institutional investors because they try to get a sense of, you know, what are the use cases? What are, what are these things going to be used for? And so what is your sense of that, you know, obviously in terms of payments, but is there anything broader, any of the industries that you think you can start really starting to affect and maybe get business from in the coming years? 
Yeah, for sure. So I mentioned that we are really specializing our network around a core vertical, which includes payments, but more generally simple data transfer, uh, moving data or value from A to B. So that obviously can encompass a very broad range. So I'll mention some highlights here. So within payments, I think there's some the near-term adopters and then the longer-term uh, really exciting developments going forward. So in the short term, the way the area that we're focusing on specifically is B2B payments. So B2C payments are really, I think, the most prominent one in most people's minds, but B2B payments end up comprising a huge portion of the economy, almost $10 trillion per year in the U.S. alone. Obviously, globally, it's it's much larger. And the issue when you're confronting B2C payments, particularly with something like crypto, is that consumer habits tend to be pretty hard to change. And the specific pain point that people face in payments, at least domestically in the B2C context, is the merchant fees that are charged on any transaction that dramatically cuts into the profitability of the merchant if you, you know, run 10% margins and you're using, you're giving up 3% of your gross revenue, that has a massive implication for your bottom line, but the consumer doesn't see that. And even if that cost is implicitly uh, passed on to those consumers, they don't really, uh, it's an abstract concept to them. It's not something that really impacts their daily lives. So I, in my mind, pencil that in as a longer term area that crypto can really improve, but it's probably not the lowest hanging fruit out there. In contrast, B2B payments involve people who are directly seeing the impact of the current payments regime. And you can specifically narrow that down to businesses that are transacting in small dollar values, businesses that have low profit margins, businesses that tend to be transacting back and forth with one another under pretty inefficient either invoice or P-card or credit card systems. And so you can apply all these filters here and narrow it down to maybe a trillion or two of uh, new B2B payments in the U.S. that really fall within our strike zone. That's really our sweet spot where you have people who are dramatically impacted by the current payments regime are incentivized to change and have a new payment option. But the key consideration here goes back to my original point here where when outlining what we do, not only the performance side is critical, but also the usability side. So I think in any major payments application going forward, I don't see it happening necessarily denominated in cryptocurrency. Now, in an international transfer, perhaps there's some room there since there are already swaps going on. It was really critical to enable U.S. dollar-based transactions. And this is where asset-backed tokens become really interesting, specifically U.S. dollar-backed tokens, where you can have genuine, stable U.S. dollar-denominated transactions back and forth between these businesses. And it becomes a very simple user experience in contrast to the current UX of the space right now. So that's really our sweet spot and bent where most of our conversations and early partnerships have taken form. The other interesting area that I think uh, is ripe for disruption in the short term is international remittances. And this is already something that has attracted a ton of attention from the crypto space, much more so than B2B payments, which I think we're relatively differentiated in. And specifically, remittances, you know, say, remitting money from the U.S. or Europe back to a developing country of origin is massively expensive. Um, you know, often you're giving up, you know, 5 10 15 $20 out of $100 you're sending back, which is massive 
impact for people who are not earning a lot of money in the first place. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why this is so expensive. Things like verifying identity, uh, complying with KYC AML laws. A lot of these things are things that crypto can make a lot more efficient. But again, you want to make that user experience as easy as possible. Uh, so those are, I think, the two really short-term ones uh, within payments. Now, I think in the short, medium term, another really interesting area of application for this technology that's outside of payments is digital identity. So you can think of the, the core problem of digital identity is a coordination problem. You have an identity document that's issued by a certain state agency, whether it's at the federal level, if it's at the local municipal level, it's, it's at you know an international level. And verifying the authenticity of those documents can be quite expensive. You know, anytime you set up a bank account, for example, you have to go and submit your passport and driver's license and proof of address, all these sort of considerations that ends up being very inefficient. If you have to go set up three bank accounts, that's uh, three different banks that are basically repeating the same process over and over again. You're ending up wasting resources. And the key problem here, of course, is that your federal government, let's say, is not going to trust every single business out there to access their databases to verify the authenticity of the documents that they're presenting. Now, this is the you know, perfect use case for blockchain in that it's something that requires trustlessness. The various independent parties don't trust each other for mainly security reasons. Uh, you need something that's going to be repeated and publicly visible, um, but you also need things like privacy components and those sorts of things. So I think we're still a little ways out from having really the infrastructure in place, but I know a lot of companies in the identity space are actively looking um, at blockchain as a really interesting path forward to solve that coordination problem and make it much more efficient. Now, longer term, I think there are really a ton of interesting opportunities. One of the things that uh, has interested me for quite a while is content monetization. I'm still not really sure if it's even realistic, uh, but the idea is things like ad blockers um, and non-ad content are becoming increasingly more prevalent and consumers are increasingly pushing back on the ad-based paradigm where um, they become increasingly intrusive and you have this negative feedback loop where as more people block ads, the ads have to become more intrusive so that they can effectively monetize the remaining audience. Um, and so we're kind of pushing in the general direction where the ad-based media content monetization model will be potentially challenged going forward. And if you think of an alternative, uh, either the Netflix model where you charge sort of one big subscription fee on a monthly basis and you get access to a library, or you can think of more of a micro uh, payments monetization model where you pay as you go, a la carte style. Uh, the challenge so far has been one single centralized platform controlling the space and also the inefficiency of super small transactions. And the great thing about crypto is the ability to push through both those barriers. It's obviously decentralized by nature. Anyone can participate and you can very easily make some open source standard that websites can and browsers can engage with to make that process seamless and easy for the end user. Uh, and at the same time, the transaction problem where you can't viably send 10 cents over the Visa card network right now, that goes away with, with the sufficiently performance and efficient crypto network, like what we're trying to build out. So I'll leave it there. There's obviously a ton of really exciting 
areas going forward in securities and asset tokenization. But I will say at the high level, what really interests me the most is the areas of applications that have the highest dollar weighted impact uh, overall. And so while something like payments is less complex than something like general purpose smart contract platform, uh, the possible market share, let's say, or dollar volumes or impact of the payments use cases or things like even digital identity are, in my mind, much larger than centralized computation, just because there's only really a small fraction of current computation that makes sense to move to the centralized setting given the orders of magnitude greater cost. And so, you know, the things that really interest me and I think are the most compelling fall into that basic transaction or simple data transfer framework. Uh, and that's really the core reason why we decided to focus on that here at Logos. So first and foremost, I think you're being incredibly unfair to the banks. I enjoy going there and bringing every single document I have, my family shield, even though I don't have a family shield, any kind of blood test, any kind of, (laughs) any kind of genomic testing. I I think you're being incredibly unfair to the banks. Um, So I I just say that because obviously we're all in crypto. We don't want the banks to shut us down. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and so one of the things that we like to do on the show towards the top of the hour is getting to know you a little bit deeper. Um, obviously very accomplished um, from traditional finance and now deeply into building a protocol and a system out there that is very, very interesting. It has a lot of potential use cases and is trying to solve that scalability issue and it seems to be doing quite well. Um, so, we like to kind of point to two different types of inputs that we hopefully try to put into our brain. Um, one is music. So what do you typically listen to? I know, imagine you're traveling a lot and you're also, you know, meeting with a lot of other, um, you know, folks out there in the ecosystem. Um, so what do you listen to? And then in terms of reading, um, as you probably know, everyone in crypto is the most read person in the world. Um, hopefully, you know, you're reading stuff outside of crypto, but would love to hear kind of what you're reading or what you've read recently that had a, uh, an effect on you. Yeah. So, uh, I'll, I'll lead it off with a two for one here. I'm a Jersey guy. So, um, Bruce Springsteen is, is quite close to my heart here and uh, I finally got around to, actually listening to his autobiography, Born to Run, and it's about halfway through right now, and it's, it's really phenomenal. So it, it kind of meshes with the, the hometown flair as, uh, as well as you know, my, my typical listening grounds are in the classic rock era. Uh, but to anyone who's a Bruce fan, I'd highly recommend it. It's narrated by himself in the audiobook form, uh, and it's a really great deep dive into you know, the, the story behind the, the legend there. Um, you know, beyond the the Bruce stuff, you know, it's kind of boring, uh, regular classic rock type stuff. Uh, you know, big Rolling Stones fan. Uh, Bruce, uh, I just saw the Who in concert actually uh, at MSG a couple weeks ago. Uh, they have a really phenomenal tour going on right now. So been brushing off some of the, the old Who songs as well. Uh, in terms of what I'm reading here, um, in the crypto space, I actually spent a lot of time thinking about valuation. Uh, it's something that, just based on my background, I find super interesting, thinking about what are the really fundamental drivers of crypto value, you know, what are the various levers that might impact 
you know, the viability of various products and, you know, from an investor's perspective, whether it makes sense to, to invest in a particular project. And uh, so I, I try to do a lot of reading in that space. It sort of comes and goes in intensity. Uh, but Chris Berniski is, is obviously uh, a kind of thought leader in that space and recently put out a uh, really interesting piece on it in terms of thinking about meta classes of crypto assets um, that's somewhat analogous to the meta classes of traditional assets and thinking about specifically how uh, proof of stake interacts and informs value somewhat separately from proof of work. And it actually dovetails a little bit with some of the pieces that we put out. Uh, we tend to put out research pieces periodically. You can see them on our Medium blog, which is linked to on our website. But we've explored a number of different models there. And uh, I think particularly for investors looking at the space, it's really critical to think how value accrues, not because it's necessarily going to inform the value right now of investments, since we're very much still in the proof of concept stage and are really, I think, still quite a little bit away from actual fundamental revenue drivers. But just in terms of contextualizing, well, I think this project is viable because it has you know, this potential market and these various levers can then drive this potential value. Uh, it's, it's just helpful in contextualizing the space. And you know, I always try to keep up on that as much as possible. Um, you know, beyond kind of the, the core crypto area, I, uh, I've recently been working on getting in my private pilot's license. I'm about uh, a third of the way through the hours. So I've been on a, a bit of a flying uh, book binge here. Uh, I read Tom Wolf's The Right Stuff a couple months back. That's obviously a phenomenal book. Highly recommend it to anyone. It's about the, uh, the original space missions, um, you know, first people on the U.S. side in space and in orbit, uh, and sort of the fighter pilots behind them. And uh, I also read uh, there's this quite legendary, somewhat infamous uh, Air Force pilot uh, called Robin Olds, who flew in World War II, was a double ace there, was one of the most notable uh, squadron leaders in Vietnam, was also an ace there. Uh, he has a really great autobiography called Fighter Pilot that I really enjoyed recently here. So Michael is our first and only pilot in crypto, so he isn't yet, but that's going to be fun. I'm going to have you back. I'm going to have you come back and let us know when you're done with that. And also, we're going to have you come back and talk about valuation. And also, if Chris Berninski is listening to the show, and maybe he is, we want you on the show, too, to talk about valuation because we've been trying to figure that out. And obviously, that's a moving target, so we want you on. So the last thing that we like to do on the show is let our guests, if there's a place where people can learn more about Logos, get involved, you know, feel free to let them know. Yeah, for sure. The best places are our website, which is logos.network. And the research pieces that I mentioned, blog updates, etc., are on our medium, which is medium.com slash logos network. And also feel free to follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle, I think, is at MC Zikowski. Uh, and I'm sure you can uh, find the spelling of that somewhere around here. Uh, I kind of come and go, but we'll usually post some of the interesting articles and results that we're putting out there. Um, so all three of those places are the, are the places to find out more. 
Fantastic. This has been really great. And again, we're going to have you on because, you know, you touched on valuation and we really, I really want to talk to you more about that coming from traditional finance and then, you know, into crypto as a founder. Um, definitely want to talk to you more about what you're thinking there and some of the processes you're thinking about. This has been Michael from Logos. You want to check this out. They are dealing with and trying to solve the scalability issue, and they're trying to create a system for payments and something that has been really needed in the system. Um, They've gotten a lot of attention. They've got some great investors already, and uh, it's something you should definitely want to take a look at. Remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice, but this is definitely a a project and and a company that has some great people in it. So, Michael, thank you for coming on. We'll have you on again, and we'll be seeing you soon. Take care. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter. Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.